Thank you, Carolyn. Thank you, Robbie and choir and instrumentalists for leading us so well this morning. I'm so glad you're here. It's good to see you. I'm glad for the opportunity to be able to speak to you this morning. Well, I'm convinced there's only two types of people in this world, just the two. The people who gasp when people fall and the people who laugh. (laughs) Somebody slips and there are those that wanna help them and there are those who think it's hilarious. Now, to be fair, sometimes the people who gasp and want to help, they'll wait till they get home to laugh. And sometimes the laughers, they'll help, but not until they've had a chuckle. It's like it's coded in our DNA, the way that we react when somebody slips. Now, I can see in your faces, some of you aren't fully convinced. Brad, surely there are subtypes, complicated combinations Listen, I've given this a lot of thought. I've done my research. I'll be the first to concede there are some variations. In fact, with our powers combined, we could write the behavioral book Tripping Temperaments together. Of course, there would be multiple chapters dedicated to the two types, explaining their habits, their feelings, their family history. There would be figures. Figure 1-1 would obviously be circles on a graph that would overlap, that would show the two temperaments and the various variants. Someone could claim, well, I'm a G-LH. I'm a gasper with laugher-helper tendencies. (laughs) Now, don't say no right away. We could do this together. We could change lives together. Marriages, families, friendships are often divided over this. In couples, there might be a gasper and the other may be a laugher. And in my family of five, we have both. We are certainly a gasper lean, but if I'm honest, there's some real division. Two of my kids were recently watching someone who was about to experience possible accidental consequences from their carelessness. And one of my older children mentioned at the prospect of their calamity, Oh, that would be so funny. To which my four-year-old chided the other child and said, Oh no, that would not be funny. That would be, bless his heart. (laughs) No matter which camp that you're in, busting up or blessing hearts, we all know what it feels like to fall, don't we? We've been the one who slipped the one who drew the mixture of gasps and laughter. I remember an instance years ago when I was a youth pastor on a ski trip and I stepped off the bus, went down the stairs and right by the bus windows and I immediately slipped, experienced a moment of levitation (laughs) and then a terrible, very painful, violent introduction to the icy pavement. And believe it or not, those adolescent onlookers were very heavy into the it's hilarious camp. (laughs) Not too long ago, a friend of mine went up and was gonna make some announcements on stage for the first time. I happened, happened to be there. He got partway up the stairs and he took a spill of epic proportion, Sunday morning. Thankfully, after he composed himself, 
He went to the microphone and his quick wit made things a bit less awkward, but I've got to tell you, the damage was done. And I can tell you this morning, I am keenly aware that you are all here, and I'm very aware of each of those cameras and all these steps here. And I think I've prayed a prayer that many preachers have in this modern era, oh Lord, please don't make me an internet sensation today. There is a a psalm that speaks on the seriousness of slipping. The psalmist Asaph in chapter 73 of the book actually addresses an attitude that trips us up. Early in the passage, the same scripture Anna has already read to us, the psalmist states, my steps had almost slipped. I was close, I almost fell into the trap, I almost gave in, gave up. This morning, I want us to consider this great psalm. I want it to intersect with our lives, to meet us in our current context. The truth is, this morning, that God's Spirit wants to work in your life. And His Word has transformational power for each of us. Let's turn in or turn on our Bibles to Psalm 73 if you're not already there. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Give attention to God's word. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. The first theme that I want you to consider this morning is this. The cost of comparison. The cost of comparison. Now, 12 Psalms are attributed to Asaph. He was a Levite appointed by David to worship before the ark. David later established his family as temple musicians. Well, Asaph begins this song by affirming that though God is good to those who are pure in heart, he himself had nearly slipped in his, in his faith in God and the way that God worked. His problem was is that he was envious of the prosperity of the wicked. Why would the people who oppose God be better off than those who trust him? This vexed him so that his faith in God's goodness began to waver, leaving him on unsteady ground. Now this psalm is notable for facing, not hiding from life. These are the thoughts that we certainly have all entertained and sometimes embraced. Why should I seek God and purity of heart, personal holiness, when it seems that the wicked of this world live lavishly and seemingly bathe in success? Asaph says in this scripture, when he looks at the world, it seems like they don't have any trouble. They live carefree lives. It doesn't seem that they endure pain until they get to death. They're prideful, boastful, they scoff, they speak malice, they speak directly against God, and yet their riches increase and increase exponentially. It's important for us to note this morning that this comparison costs Asaph. Comparison often does. Teddy Roosevelt famously said that comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is costly. 
Sure, there are times when comparison is right. Even other psalmists would say, this is the result of a wicked life, and this is the result of a godly life. But the issue with Asaph is different. His comparison is different. When he sets his eyes on the prosperity of someone else, it causes him to take his eyes off the goodness of God. Paul warned the church at Corinth against this kind of comparison. We're not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. It was obvious, too, that he knew the value of contentment over compare when he said, in whatever state I am, I found a way to be content. The thought here, as the, thought, the psalmist's heart began to, to grow sour, what did this comparison cost Asaph? By his own reflective admission, he says, I was ignorant. I was embittered. I was envious. Ignorant, envious, embittered. Boy, he sounds fun to be around, doesn't he? Here he is in the midst of his misery as he pins this song. Do you know what? As much as we want to remove ourselves from this situation, from this scripture, I wonder what we're like when we compare. How it affects our relationships, our marriages, our families. You wouldn't dare to compare, would you? You wouldn't compare your possessions with somebody else. Look at how much they have. You wouldn't compare careers with somebody. Look at that job they have. Look at all the money that they make. And I'm stuck in the cubicle with Carl from a county who eats tuna salad every day without fail. You wouldn't compare something like your family with another family, would you? How come their family's so perfect? And my family always seems to be failing. Wealth, how can they travel every weekend and we're stuck here? Did you see that purse she had? I know how much that cost. What about your health? They're healthy and here I am, ailment after ailment. Sometimes we compare ourselves to others like Asaph and we sense the absence of justice or a deficit of blessing in our context. Sometimes we compare to feel better about ourselves. At least I'm not like him. At least I didn't do what she did. I'm doing okay. That's a different kind of comparison, but that is a prideful posture. And scripture t clearly teaches us that pride comes before a fall. So whether our comparison is something we do because we feel shortchanged or because we want to feel better than, make no mistake, we're still slipping. BBC News reported in October of 2018 that at least 259 people had died in selfie-related accidents. The quest for extreme selfies killed 259 people between 2011 and 2017, a 2018 global study revealed. 
Researchers at the U.S. National Library of Medicine recommend that no selfie zones should be introduced at dangerous spots to reduce deaths. These would include the tops of mountains, tall buildings, around lakes, where all of these deaths seem to occur. What do we do when we take a selfie? We take the camera, we face the lens toward us, we insert ourselves into the backdrop. I'm in now contrast to this scene. When we compare, it takes us to the edge of a cliff, takes our eyes off of where they're supposed to be set, turns a lens towards us while setting our feet on a slippery slope. It is a dangerous dance to walk along the cliff of comparison. Asaph puts the picture of himself in the backdrop of the prosperity of the wicked. The result is costly by his own admission. He's miserable, he's ignorant, he's envious, he's bitter. We all know what it cost Asaph. What does it cost you? We often have impaired vision, spoiled sight, trouble with seeing the truth. We can't look well through the lumber in our lenses. When we unfix our eyes from God and we set them focused on someone or something else, their bounty, their blessing, their perceived carefree existence, here's what we're essentially saying. Lord, look what they've been given. Look at, look at all they've been blessed with. Now look at me, it's not enough. It's not enough. The cost of comparison. A second theme I want you to notice is in verse 17. Will you turn there with me? Verse 17, Asaph has given this laundry list of all the things that these people have, all the things that they possess, all the carefree life affords them. But he has a moment of clarity. And he says this, until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Until I came to the sanctuary of God. I want you to, to see the theme, the, the cost of comparison but then I want you to see the wisdom in worship. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Now he has a new perspective, a new outlook. The sanctuary is this place the Lord promised to live where he is always to be found. It wasn't until he went into the temple of God that he remembered the waywardness of the wicked and the faithfulness of the Father. What was it there in that house? What was it there that he experienced? Was it when the word of God was opened? Was it the exposition of that word? Was it when he got around God's people and he heard conversations and then, and then he remembered? Well, scripture doesn't tell us. It just tells us everything changed when he went to worship. His perspective became completely different when he met with God. He got a new focus. 
It was worship. It was worship that helped him regain his spiritual balance. And true biblical worship so satisfies our total personality that we don't have to shop around for man-made substitutes. William Temple made this clear in his masterful definition of worship. Listen to it carefully. For worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose, and all of this gathered up in adoration. The most selfish, selfish, selfless emotion of which our nature is capable and therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness. Oh, worship, the wisdom in worship, we dare not forsake it. I recently read of a woman who got a new car and like you do, she spent most of the first day that she owned it driving it around trying to figure out everything that it did. And so she spent much time turning knobs and flipping switches and programming things and pushing buttons. Eventually, she had done so much that she started messing stuff up and error messages started to come across the screen. Finally, she drives home and starts to thumb through the manual and looking at the error message that she's getting and it turns out that she had turned off the internal compass of the car. So the car is trying to always figure out where it's at so it can give you direction. And this error message was coming over and over across the screen. Do you know worship works like that in us? Like an internal compass. It helps orient us. Without it, we're, we're lost. We can't trust our direction. It helps us establish the true north of our soul, remembering who our God is, what he has done for us. Until I came to the sanctuary of God. God, it didn't add up. It didn't make sense. It was out of balance when I looked at them until I came to you. Until I went to worship. Everything changed. This morning, I want you to see the cost of comparison, the wisdom in worship, and then the goodness of God. Look at verse 21 with me. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You've taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me. Afterward, receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You've destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The goodness of God. 
I was vexed. I admit I was ignorant, pierced within, but you've taken me by the hand, God. You've guided me. God, I have nothing that I desire but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are my strength and you are my portion. And that's important. Because see, we don't have to be concerned about somebody else's portion when he is our portion. Asaph is saying, God, you, you are so good to me. This is my testimony. God, you are so good to me. And believer, it is your testimony too. God is so, so good to you. When our focus is flawed, it will lead to failure. When we take our eyes off of him and putting, put it on something else or someone else, the result is always disastrous. Like Lot's wife, when she looked back on Sodom, like David, when he took his eyes off the Lord and put it on Bathsheba, when Peter took his eyes off of Jesus, immediately, immediately, he began to sink. Don't try to measure the prosperity of other people with what you perceive you've been blessed with. It will cost you. Fix your eyes on Jesus If you must compare, compare with the cross. Take all the wealth of this world, the power, the possessions, the temporary pleasure of sin that we are tempted to take a hold of, add the glitz and the glamour of a self-serving existence, throw on top of it anything and everything this world seemingly affords and put it opposite of what we have in Christ and it doesn't register on the scale. The good, the bad, whatever season or state you are in, no need to look elsewhere. What was accomplished, the gift of God, the cross, the forgiveness of sins, the adoption into his royal family. Let me say in no uncertain terms this morning, Jesus is enough. Asaph says, I almost slipped. (laughs) When I took my eyes off of God, I put them on somebody else. But then I went to worship. Then I had a little church. Now I remember the ruin of wickedness. And I see the goodness of my God. Asaph shows us the cost of comparison the wisdom of worship, and the goodness of God. Asaph, near the end of this passage, said, As for me, the nearness of God is my good. As for me, the nearness of God is my good. Have you ever been in a vehicle or maybe at the airport in a shuttle? Maybe you've been on a subway car before. You're getting yourself situated, and whatever you're riding on just takes off before you're ready. You're still pulling your luggage on and getting it situated. You're finishing that last text, and all of a sudden, (laughs) they take off. What do you do? 
We reach for whatever is near. When you slip, you reach for whatever is close. What have you brought yourself near to? Where have you put yourself? If we're honest, sometimes when we slip, we reach for all the wrong things. Can I tell you this morning, God is reaching out for you. God has made a way for you to be near to him. God loves you. He made that way through his son, Jesus. And his son reached for you when he reached across the cross. Could it be this morning the Lord is meeting you on the ledge? Could it be this morning he wants to take you by your face and turn your gaze back to him, away from what you've been looking at, away from something or someone else, and back on him? Could it be he's reaching for your hand, that he wants to take a hold of your hand just like Asaph and steady your steps and bring you away from that slippery slope? I almost slipped. How do you keep from slipping? Well, it's a matter of perspective, really. Asaph makes it clear. It's what you fix your focus on. So when you find yourself like Asaph, there stumbling on the edge of that slippery slope, whatever you do, don't look down, look up. Will you pray with me? God, this morning, we put our heart's focus on you and your word. God, there's not a one of us in here who would say, there hasn't been a time, there haven't been seasons, God, I haven't struggled with slipping when I compare myself with somebody else. God, when I see you've moved someone else's life, when I see your perceived goodness in another area, and God, I feel, I feel left out. Lord, patterned in this passage, we see truth. We see that when we come to your sanctuary, when we look at you and your love and the sacrifice of your son, God, we can't help but see your goodness. We can't help but be overwhelmed with your kindness, your grace, and your mercy and the overwhelming goodness of our God. God, when we do put our eyes on something or someone else, God, help us not to slip. Help us not to fall. 
God, help us to focus on you. It's in the matchless name of our Savior Jesus we pray. Amen.